Well, welcome everybody to another edition of the Art Business Podcast. And my guest today is uh, an alumna of the MA Art Business at Sotheby's Institute of Art, where just to remind you, I'm the program director of that program, have been for over 20 years. Um, and um, I've seen uh, I, uh, Ariana Khan, our guest today, I've seen a lot of alumni you know, students coming through the course and um, many of them end up staying in London and working in the art world in London. And Ariana is, is, is one of those. And she has worked in, 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 in several very, very interesting art businesses uh, since she graduated. So as usual, I'm going to just start by welcoming Ariana. You're very welcome today. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be on. It's exciting. <laughs> And I'm just going to get the ball rolling and break the ice, as it were, by uh, by asking about, um, uh, you know, your favourite city and any reasons why that might be. Well, sure. I mean, first of all, before before I tell you about my favourite city, I have to say I'm surprised that it's been 20 years at the Institute because you look exactly the same. So whatever, <laughs> whatever you're drinking there, um, it's it's working. <laughs> it's probably that I'm whatever. not drinking that is doing the trick. <laughs> um, my favourite city. Well, you know, I, I might be a little biased. I've been now in London since I think 2012, 2013, and I really don't think there's any city like it. I think it's, I couldn't even say it's a love-hate um, relationship. I, I love it. I think like most people, it can be very hectic, but um, when, when I leave, when I go back to sort of um, California, the Bay Area where I spent six formative years in my life, San Francisco, um, LA a little bit. I love being there in the sun, um, but you know, I always miss London. I grew up in the Gulf in the Middle East, um, you know, Dubai, Kuwait. And uh, yeah, I, London is up there. I mean, of course I like to holiday in Rome and various other cities, but yeah, I think London. Uh, but, but you know, is it, what is it about London? I mean, I think you have everything at your fingertips. You have an incredible art scene. And I know this is sort of gonna be a lot of what we speak about, but the galleries, the museums, I mean, we have incredible museums and we almost take it for granted. I take it for granted. You know, on a weekend, you can just go to the National Gallery, you can go to the VNA, you can just walk around Soho. And, you know, there's, um, I spent some time in Fitzrovia earlier this week with a gallerist who's opening up a new space. So, you know, there's more galleries that are popping up in London. Um, you know, you go to East London and there's, um, you know, it's, it's like being in a different world almost. Um, so I think it's that, I think it's the people, you meet so many people and I think the MAP program is such a great example of that. You have people that are based in London, but also that come from around Europe, around, you know, the entire world, really. So you get this amazing um, mix of culture, of perspectives. Um, yeah, I, there's nowhere else like it. Yeah, as, as a teacher, I, I love the kind of excitement of students who don't really know London or sometimes they've never been here. And I always I always re regret that I know it because, you know, it's like when you go to a, a new city, it's so exciting. Yeah. 
And I'm, I, yeah. it's very hard to kind of put the glass, see through the glasses that they're seeing through, which I'd love to be able to do. But to be honest, I, I, I don't tire of London either. I find it continually exciting and absorbing, even though I've known it most of my life. Um, so, so it does seem to have something, and I sometimes I wonder what it is in London because because obviously when you when you live in a place as you know you kind of begin to see maybe the negatives and the problems of the of a city more than a visitor might see, if you like. But you know, yeah, I think I think it's definitely the gallery. It's not just as you say those public galleries. It's the fact that there are all these amazing commercial galleries like and startup galleries with amazing new artists on, on show. And there's region, areas of London where that becomes part of the culture and the cafe culture. Yeah. Totally. I think, I think it's about, I, I think at the end of the day, any city that you're in, you can tire of it. Um, and the onus is on us to kind of see things in you every time we go around. And I think what's great also about London is you get these different pockets, right? Yeah. So I sort of touched upon East London, but you can walk around little Venice and it's a certain kind of energy you, I don't know, I, I was walking from Freeze offices uh, the other day to watch a film screening at, um, you know, the British Film Institute. And that's a whole sort of other cultural area. Um, mm. We talk about the arts, but, you know, performing arts, um, music, all of that. Yeah. Yeah, in in many ways, I find it frustrating because I miss things. You know, I get I get alumni <laughs> saying, "Please come to my yeah. opening exhibition," and I look at my diary and I can't make it. And I'll say, "I'll pop, I'll drop in," then I realize four weeks later yeah. I haven't done that. I have to make an true. apology. <laughs> it's, it's just it's almost that there's too much happening. <laughs> Always, but it seems it seems to thrive and it seems to cope from from having too much in some ways. You know. Yeah. So that's that's really good. Are, are there any kind of favorite buildings like architecture? Are you into architecture? Or don't you really think about buildings and architecture? I mean, I love I love beautiful things. I think London, well, as most of us probably do, that's a really you know general thing to say. Um, I spent some time where was I in Prague? Architecturally, I think, stunning. Um, as far as buildings, well. I can't say that the building that we're in is especially beautiful. Where have you been to 180 House or 180 Strand? Um, this is in the near Strands near the, the for, for listeners who don't know London so well. Strand is a is a is a quite historic road um, uh, by the River Thames uh, that used to have a lot of the, a lot of townhouses like for for aristocratic people used to be along that riverbank by the Strand. I think the word Strand actually was the Anglo when the Anglo-Saxon um, settlements were here. They've moved out of the collapsed Roman early medieval under which collapsed basically the walls and everything. And the archaeological evidence suggests they moved to the Strand, which is I think Anglo-Saxon for beach. So you can imagine the River Thames used to be broader and it was like an area that was a, on a beach on the Thames. But um, your building in the Strand, no, I haven't been there. Maybe you could Well, I should, I should definitely <laughs> invite you, um, which I will, but, uh, but it's, it's right next to Somerset House, which yeah. is, I think, beautiful, um, has a wonderful inner courtyard. And I think there's an isolating- 18th century survival as well, yeah. Um, well, this one is slightly newer, and I wouldn't say it was beautiful, but I would say what goes on inside it is is very interesting. It's um, I only joined Freeze a year and a few months ago, and I think before I um, joined, they were in East London, and it was a different office, but they moved into 180 Strand, which is 
you know, Soho House is there and TikTok and Charlotte Tilbury and all sorts of different creative companies. And it's become, you know, and it has a, a sort of a, a communal working space in the lobby. And it's just full of young people and artists. And I say young people as if I'm old, I'm not old. And we, we are both not old, um, but it's very different from the, the physicality of my, you know, former life in, in the auction world at Sotheby's in Mayfair, where it's a lot older, the building, I mean, you, I know, David, that you've been to Sotheby's and come to the previews, but, you know, obviously very beautiful in the public spaces, but you go into the offices and it's a bit of a rabbit warren. I have, um, I have done that, believe me. <laughs> I often tell students when I take them, this is like a swan that you're seeing, the beautiful swan gliding across the water, but downstairs in the in the engine rooms, it can be quite cramped and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> now wonderful, I look back. Wonderful but... in its own way, but, 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 you know, that is the issue of working in a non-purpose-built auction house or other kind of art business, I guess, whereas like yeah. Sotheby's New York is, of course, a kind of purpose-built building in many ways, you know. So different from from Sotheby's London, but to answer your question, I mean, I love I love Mayfair. I mean, not for the the, the sort of um, the mm. tourist traffic on Oxford Street, but New Bond Street where Sotheby's was. It was so it was part of my day and my life. So those buildings and that kind of the mix of old and new is always really nice in London. Um, sure. Yeah, and before we get into, um, you, you've already mentioned working at Freeze, and I, I didn't put that in, I'll put it on the introduction, obviously, to the podcast, but yeah, that's your job at the moment is is with Freeze Art Fair, and we'll come to that later on. Um, but but any musical interests before we move on to pr your professional life? Musical interests? Um, any particular favourite music that you would take well, to the island <laughs> oh I love I love that podcast well not as much as I love your podcast David but I love <laughs> it. I this. um gosh I I would say that my my music tastes much like maybe my my art my taste in art is um eclectic and it depends on my mood I I love jazz um Herbie Hancock um Sunny Rollins. I yeah. have a playlist called Cantaloupe Jazz on Spotify that is a mix of sort of old school jazz. Um, I think it was, I called it Cantaloupe Jazz after Herbie Hancock's song. Um, so yeah. jazz, um, when I was in California in the Bay Area, when I was at university, started listening to a lot of R&B and hip hop, 90s hip hop. Mm. Um, so I have that too when I'm feeling particularly um, sort of reflective. I also listen to country sometimes. Um, but yeah, Maggie Rogers is an artist that I think is great. Um, I listened to a talk with her and Questlove, who's the drummer for The Roots. Um, mm -hmm. I like him too. He, he has a great um, YouTube talk series, which I recommend. He's, he's great. Um, yeah. And uh, there was someone else, I think it was Olivia Dean. I think mm. she's a young British singer. Um, <laughs> I think that's her name. I'm listening to her too. Do you ever get to go to live jazz in London, for example? You know, I think one of the last things I did before the pandemic was to take my mother who was visiting um, London for her birthday. I took her to Ronnie Scott's. Fantastic. Which, 
yeah, which as you know, has been around for a while. Um, my parents used to live in London many, many moons ago before I was born, they would go. So I took her mm, there. Down in Soho, yeah. Dean Street. Yeah. yeah, Dean Street. Yeah. Is it Dean Street or is it Greek? I can never remember those streets. Is it the Greek? It's either Greek Street or Dean Street. It's one but of I, them. <laughs> one Soho house on both it's, of them. It's opposite, really opposite the equally famous bar Italia. <laughs> Which is a, a, you know, it's a little Italy in London, really, that cafe. It's great down there. I should probably remember, but every time I go, uh, it's dark. I probably had a big glass of wine. <laughs> Absolutely. I, <don't> know. <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. Um, and, um, and, and then maybe not asking you what your favourite work of art is, because I always think that's a bit of a naff question. I hate being asked that. It's like being asked about music, because your mood, mood changes, you know. Today, I feel like going to the National Gallery Tomorrow I want to go to some cutting edge like installation somewhere uh, in Hackney or wherever. But uh, maybe what we could ask you um, leading on to the, the, the rest of the discussion is, um, can you, do you have memories of, of suddenly realizing that you love visual art? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I do. And it, it's, um, and I, I, I'm not even looking back and creating the story. I remember it very well. I, I went to um, a British high school in Kuwait. So as a lot of your listeners might know, or maybe the international students not as, won't be as familiar, but I did GCSEs or IGCSEs because I was abroad and I did fine art. And I remember putting together a portfolio and that was when I discovered the Impressionists and Post-Impressionists. And I think it was really, um, it was in the works of Gauguin, Degas, um, Matisse, all of the sort of the typical, the, the, the big names um, that really made me fall in love with art. And, and just sort of, I, I think my mom still has a, a portrait I did of myself in the style of Matisse or, oh. um, yeah, no, she still hasn't. She's like, it's, she shows everyone. She's like, oh, that, that's my favorite. And, you know, and then they say, oh, who is that? And then she would. <laughs> as a typical mom would do so it was it was in them it was Degas I loved his ballerinas I loved his pastels I loved the brush strokes um yeah so that's when I knew I loved art um and then yeah and then I and then I went through a phase where I where I thought I didn't have the soul of an artist so I decided to go into pre-med and medical <laughs> stuff so but that's a whole separate oh I didn't know I didn't know you had that side to you and that, no, I think I think impressionism and post-impressionism is, is is quite it's it, that's quite a standard way I think when people first respond to art because it seems to appeal to 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 young minds as well as sort of more more connoisseur type yeah. minds, but perhaps more than more so than old masters where you've got that kind of knowledge gap that we're not brought up learning Bible story or most of us aren't brought up learning Bible stories. Well, I certainly wasn't in Kuwait. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Well, I mean, no, I was, was, <laughs> was going to say, sorry, I thought you were in some kind of Judeo-Christian community in Kuwait or, or whatever. Yeah, no, so, so, <laughs> no, that's interesting. And, and what, what about contemporary art then? Because, I mean, obviously that that is that's like what we call dead art. <laughs> the Institute, we probably shouldn't use that phrase. But what about living art, you know, living artists and ultra contemporary? And there's been a big shift yeah. of in the art market in the last couple of years towards what we now have to call ultra contemporary. Okay. Very, very young artists like Flora Yutnovich being boosted into the million dollar plus sales yeah. or Salman Tour, a Pakistani artist yeah you know, you absolutely his, yeah his sales have just 
it's insane how quickly um, yeah. they've started. Can you, can you remember your first, like, cutting-edge, difficult art <laughs> exhibition that you went back to your friends and said, oh, wow, there's this really cool exhibition. It's really difficult, but I loved it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, again, not this podcast isn't about isn't about my mother's um, influence on me and my my art career or my sensibilities. But growing up in Kuwait at the time that I grew up, I mean, a lot of people were interested in art. There were a couple of spaces, um, you know, an incredible collection of Islamic art. But of course, that's not ultra contemporary. And you know, one of the first galleries in the Gulf was actually, you know, founded in Kuwait in 1969. But mm. but really the, the spaces were few and far between. But my mother, who was always interested in, in supporting young artists and, and collecting, would go to Tehran a lot. And, um, you know, she would bring back pieces. We would go in the summers. And that's when I think my understanding of, you know, contemporary art, living artists and getting excited about art in a different way really took off because you're sort of you know that they exist maybe you meet them and you see that they're sort of you know you know they're they're producing in real time but as far as crazy conceptual difficult art there wasn't that much of it in Kuwait and um and we traveled a lot of course we did but um yeah, I don't remember. And, and to be honest, call me a traditionalist, and I probably shouldn't say this. Um, I work at Freeze, so <laughs> and it's you know contemporary culture and you know sort of cutting edge artists, which I'm so interested in on a conceptual level. But I've always loved the kind of technical physicality of art, um, and I've only ever been able to fall in love with conceptual pieces when I meet the artist, because I think when you know the kind of history and the narrative behind it, um, it just opens up a whole different yeah. world. No, I totally get that. And I, you know, I've had to do some introductions to exhibitions from some of these emerging, these ultra contemporary artists down at JD Mallet. I did a podcast, a couple of podcasts with the artists and, and JD himself, who I noticed has, by, has just got a show of those artists, people like Kojo oh, yeah. Marfo and Georgina, Georgiana Dimmert. They're being shown in Mexico, in the art fair in Mexico. Um, oh, I can't quite remember its name. It's got a strange name, which I can't remember, or Mocha or something like that. But it looks so exciting. And it reminds me that how, how up and coming Mexico is, I think, in terms of future mm -hmm. art world, you know, development. Yeah. That's, 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 yes. that's really good. Um, I'm, I have a lot, I know a lot of people that are there and I keep on seeing my newsfeed on, on Instagram with various colleagues and friends that are, that have flown to Mexico City for the fair. And, mm. and as you know, Freeze LA is coming up and yep. while I'll be missing the fair in Mexico, I will be in Mexico City at the end of February for about mm. a week. And oh, um, so, so I'll report back, but a lot of, a lot of exciting things to see in Mexico. You're right. A lot mm. of people are going there and yeah. Yeah, I'm afraid I've still never been to Mexico. Not not through not wanting to, but just time, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so so coming back to your stuff, you know, then moving moving into out of being a, a potential fine art fine artist yourself, uh in your in your education in Kuwait and then and then maybe doing some like medical studies and then and then <laughs> coming to London what made you what made you decide to come and do the MA art business then in Sotheby's Institute in London um 
Well, that, that's a great question. And, and it was really a considered rather than a sort of, you know, um, random choice. And not to say that people make this choice casually to, to do a, an MA in art business. It's very specific. Um, as you touched on, David, I, I, went to, I went to a university and in, in California, Stanford, which is known for it sort of, you know, um, more of the tech side of things. It's not necessarily a liberal arts school in, in the US that's focused on humanities. Although I would say that um, it excels on both sides, um, left and right brain. And, um, but, but at the time I had done A-levels and my A-levels were purely in the sciences and mathematics because mm. I thought I was going to medical school. Um, because I decided, you know, before then that I didn't have the soul of an artist, um, even though I painted and did portraiture and I illustrated a couple of books, but um, I did that and I focused on the human side of health, so psychology and sort of anthropology as well, and worked as most people at Stanford University do after graduating, they either go into consultancy work or they work at a tech startup. And I worked at a small startup in Menlo Park. And while I learned so much and was privileged enough to be with you know, incredibly smart people, I realized that I wanted a vocation. I wanted not an unhealthy work-life balance, but a life and a profession where I was interested in in it beyond the sort of nine to five, so to speak. And I took a break. I, I went back to the Middle East for a couple of months to sort of reorient myself and have a have a moment to reflect. And um, I had this big grid of all the different industries and sectors and roles, I, you know, everything from retail, fashion, um, you know, interior design, graphic design and auction house and Sotheby's Institute was on my mind because they had actually come to my university and had done one of those info sessions. And um, I remember speaking to my family and thinking, I don't know, I don't know if this is for me. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't really understand what the options were in the industry beyond being a curator or working at a museum or a gallery. I didn't really understand what it meant to work in the art business. Um, but maybe it was slightly, you know, a process. It was a process of elimination, maybe, and and realizing what I didn't want to do, mm. and then really taking a taking a leap of faith um, in that. You know, I couldn't know anything or everything for certain, but I knew what I liked doing, and I knew that I liked both the sort of the creative side of the art business, um, but also the more technical and strategic side. I also knew that after having spent um, a couple of months back in Kuwait and, and with people that were, you know, sort of from the, you know, based in the country and had maybe gone back after studies that, you know, there was a lot happening in the region. And, and I went to university as an undergraduate in 2007, and that was really the boom where all those headline, um, you know, art headlines were coming out, whether it was the museums or, you know, the the Cezanne card players that were being purchased by the Royal Oh, Family. yes, by Middle Eastern guys, yeah. Yeah, so, so it was sort of in that period when I was away, and frankly, it was a bit of a bubble in Palo Alto. I was incredibly removed from the art world and what was mm. happening in the 
art market as it related to, to the Middle East and the Gulf specifically. But going back, you know, four years later, it sounds like it, it's not, it wasn't that long, but a lot of things changed. The cultural landscape in Kuwait changed. So all this to say, I was interested in the region. I was interested in, you know, being, being a mixed kid myself. I'm, you know, I grew up in Kuwait and I'm half Iranian and half Pakistani with, you know, very lucky to have British and American nationality. And, um, but I, but I felt really committed to the region and the program to me was a great way to orient myself and to understand the market. Um, and uh, it focused me and yeah. And then, you know, we, we have a home in London. I had spent, you know, I was born here and um, the program was great. I looked at all the professors. I think you actually interviewed me all those years <laughs> ago um, in Bedford Square. I was very intimidated. I think um, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a lot of water gone, on, gone onto the bridge. No, of course I remember. Yeah, very impressed I was. <laughs> We're going to flatter one another throughout. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a very Middle Eastern thing to do, to be overly generous. Yeah, that's okay. Generous. I can do with a bit of that, to be honest. <laughs> you don't have but um, yeah, and, yeah and, and, and and one of the things I was going to say is that when my son was at his secondary school in West London, um, the the it was kind of related to there was a side it was, it was a boys' school, but it was very much related to the girls' school next door, like LEH, Lady Ellen Hollis, and Inigo. My son was at Hampton School, and they kind of they knew one. You know, they used to socialise together. He still so he still goes out with LEH girls, you know. And boys, um, so um, um, but they, the, it was very interesting. This actually for our listeners because um, people often ask, why are there not more men, males? And I know we shouldn't really talk about gender anymore, but you know we still do. Uh, why, why are there not more men on your course on your MA out business? It's got the word business in it. You might expect, and you know, so many people at the top of that world are male still although I think our course has done a lot to change that and my response to that is that I think there's quite a lot of inverse sexism against boys doing art history so you know we have this thing about girls doing science subjects as you you know not doing science subjects but you went down that route but that's relatively unusual or used to be and probably still is and my son wanted you know he thought seriously about doing history of art because he come to you know he came to the when he was little he came to the beautiful inside my head forever preview with yeah. the day because he loved it you know they were getting out miniature ice creams to the kids in the previews <laughs> um he loved that and and um you know he he thought about it but he couldn't it wasn't offered in the boys school whereas it was in Elliot in leh the girls school next really? door and they didn't have like an exchange that you think that they might have had at sixth form level so that is my answer to that is that i think i think girls if i can say are encouraged to to do more art than boys and 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 therefore we tend to get a lot of women you know signing up for out business compared to men and i i honestly think it's to do with a kind of discriminatory aspect mm -hmm. of the education and yet paradoxically it, there's a lot of men when you get into art business as, as you will know but i think I mean, that's changing a lot you know um yeah your, what was your can you remind us of your dissertation coming back to MA art business so so just for the listeners it's a typical MA where you do two semesters with assignments and core units on um, international art world art business finance management for example there are electives um, and then you do a researcher dissertation and the, the MA art business dissertation is unusual in fact I was introducing it to this year's cohort yesterday 
it's very unusual in as much as a, there's a lot more primary research involved because no one has studied this subject and no one is studying the subject yeah. really pretty much other than us. Um, so you, how did your how did your choice of dissertation come about and what was it? Um, wow, it's it's taking me down memory lane. Mm -hmm. um, I bet you can't even uh, remember, can you? <laughs> well, you know what? I'm lucky because I was actually at the Institute this week on Monday um, right. speaking to the students and, and we did a double lecture on the Middle Eastern art market. And, you know, we can, again, that's an entirely separate conversation. What is the Middle Eastern art market? Is it the sort of the market locally? Is it about Middle Eastern art? It's sort of this blanket term that a lot of people use. But anyway, um, my interest when I when I started the program was um, in a way that maybe it wasn't when I was an undergrad, I wasn't necessarily as focused because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life at 18, but when I was in the program, I decided to be very focused and considered. So um, my interest was in the, you know, the Middle Eastern local market and what was happening there, the cultural ecosystem rather, and, um, and specifically the Gulf, the Gulf Arab states. So, you know, the UAE, Bahrain, Oman, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Kuwait. I think I mentioned all of them, um, <laughs> but, um, but I was interested in what was happening there. So it was Middle East focused. However, I what I was most interested in, and I had read what, you know, a couple of dissertations in the library at the Institute of, of people that had looked at the Middle Eastern art market. And it was all very interesting. But to me, it was such a young region that, you know, researching sales results and what the auction houses had been doing, um, you know, both locally and you know internationally wasn't as as interesting to me that you know looking at sales figures wasn't that interesting there were only so many assumptions you can make and only as many there were only so many trends you could you could deduce from a few years so what i wanted to do was to take a market in a region that i was incredibly passionate about and invested in but look for ways to understand it that could be you know taken beyond just the region. Um, and I was lucky to be um, supported in my dissertation and really encouraged to think outside of the box by Anna Dempster, who I, who was a lecturer at the time. And um, we, we sort of broadened my interest, my initial interest in the region to and looking at growth markets, um, you know, you can call it emerging markets, developing markets and to understand how we can responsibly and, and more um, accurately understand what growth means, sustainable growth. Um, so I ended up doing, it was a dual approach. It was, you know, understanding the Middle East and the specificities of the region, but also um, looking at ecological theory. So that seems, you know, it was it was a, a bit ambitious and, and maybe sort of subconsciously pulled from my kind of more um, scientific or science background from my undergrad, um, uh, my years as an undergrad. So I looked at ecological theory and how scientists would measure the health of an ecosystem. So diversity, um, you know, variants and all these sort of biological terms that I cannot be quizzed on right now because <laughs> I will not be able to accurately talk about. But but essentially, I created a model. It was sort of 
quite analytical to measure ecosystem, art ecosystem resilience. So how do we understand and measure resilience in an ecosystem in order to truly or sort of more accurately reflect sustainable growth or understand sustainable growth. And as so, far as you know, has anyone ever applied that ecological theory yeah. from a completely different discipline to the art yeah. world and the art market? No, not, I mean, no, they hadn't, I think, at least not, I mean, certainly not then. I'd, I'd done so much research. It was 20, 2013, 2014, no mm. one had done it. And, um, and you know, you'll see in, in in articles and in conversations in our industry, people talk about an ecosystem a lot yes. more now. Yes. Um, I remember in in 2013 and 2014 that that language wasn't as as commonly yeah. um, used, and that was really the way to approach it because there was so much more to an art market than just. The, the market in the way that maybe people were talking about it. It was an ecosystem. It, you know, it's not just the auction house sales figures. And, you know, I was in an auction house for seven years and, and it can tell you some of what's happening, happening in, in you know, the art world, but it's, it's really just a small, you know, tip of the iceberg really. Um, mm, definitely. Yeah. So, so you just mentioned Ariana, that something that we were going to come on to next, maybe we will, will now. Uh, you walked to, worked in an auction house for seven years. Do you, this was presumably Sotheby's in in New Bond Street, uh, yeah. where 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 I know because I used to bring students down at your um, your invite uh, to take yeah. them on previews of like Middle East and uh, art shows and Asian art shows. So, do you want to talk? How did you get that opportunity? And and, and do you want to say something about your experience of working in the Middle Absolutely. East? And um, you know, again, I I want to preface by saying you know, it's it is timing, it's opportunity in this industry when things come up sometimes. But again, it, it, it seemed that everything aligned in this moment. Uh, Edward Gibbs, who's the chairman of the, the Middle East and Middle East and India at Sotheby's, he had actually given a, a guest lecture at, um, in our program. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, again, I, I grew up in Kuwait and I knew uh, um, the Dar al Athar al Islamiyah. Uh, you know, which has this incredible Islamic art collection, as I said at the very beginning, one of the best in the world. And he, Edward had mentioned it and, you know, he sort of was still a young, a young student. So was a bit, you know, more brave than I usually would have been. And I, you know, stepped up and had a conversation with him um, after he presented his uh, lecture. And I asked him about Sotheby's and, you know, I sort of was about to walk off stage, but I turned around and I said, Edward, do you have any opportunities in the department and he said well yes let me connect you with um you know Alexandra Roy who by the way is still is still in the department and she's moved on from um working on the Islamic art sales to the modern and contemporary sales and she's absolutely amazing and had a conversation with her did a three-month internship with Sotheby's as I was writing my dissertation which was a lot at the time um and was lucky enough to get into their graduate training program. So at the time, Sotheby's ran this program, which took in six to seven um, grads, and we were basically trained across the business. And after that, again, was lucky enough to get a full-time role in the Middle East department. And it was at a time where the company was expanding their activity in the region. 
we opened up the Sotheby's Dubai office in 2016-2017 and our Middle Eastern art sales resumed in London and um, yeah so it was a busy time for the region and with for the Middle East department and I got a full-time job and I was there for up until a year and year and a half ago almost yeah and what languages do you have Ariana? I wish I could say I speak Arabic I can read it because we were all taught how to read the alphabet in in the Middle East or in Kuwait rather, but but I will say that living in Kuwait and in the Gulf generally is not the doesn't make learning Arabic as easy as you would think. I think if you mm-hmm. lived in Lebanon or Egypt um, or Jordan, even you'd pick it up. But um, but I'm half Iranian. My mother's Iranian, so I I can understand and speak Farsi with a very accent, you know, heavy heavy Americanized accent. Um, but it can so the, certainly what's be. The, what's the language of choice in Kuwait? English. A lot of people speak English. Yeah, I mean Arabic. Yes, but you know it was. It's a huge, there's a huge expat um, community in sure. you know, places like Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And actually, I would have friends when I was at university and um, one in particular who came to visit me in Kuwait. Um, his name is Andrew, and he was studying Arabic in at Stanford. And it was before the war in Syria. And they would actually send um, students to Syria to learn Arabic. And he came to Kuwait and thought, Every time I open my mouth and try to say something at a cafe, they all respond to me in English and laugh. It's very frustrating. I've had that in Italy when I was studying. They're they're all trying to practice their English and I try to practice. (laughs) (laughs) But did it help in that job, having a little bit of understanding of Arabic? Or do you think it helped more that you understood the culture? I mean, I think having languages in the auction house always really, really helpful. I think you know, having an understanding of at least my experience of the culture was the most important thing and mm-hmm. having connections, understanding um, how things worked and sort of nuance and, and all of that. And maybe having, you know, a network of, you know, knowing the institutions, knowing the people, knowing the players. The, eco- um, the ecosystem, to come back to your, your dissertation term. Ecosystem, yeah. And, and I think things are, are constantly evolving, but, um, you know, non-Middle Eastern buyers would participate in our sales, but but equally, you know, at the beginning of any sort of growing and, and new market, it's people like to buy their own. So Lebanese collectors like to buy Lebanese art, typically Iranian um, collectors kind of gravitate to Iranian art first. So, so knowing... Um, having a connection to those um, cultural communities does help and and getting how collectors there's a certain I mean we would joke there's knowing how to deal with Middle Eastern clients um, compared to other clients you know there there was a difference not they're all sort of across the board quite similar I guess but there were certain certain cultural traits maybe um, Mm -hmm. that would would have benefited people to know when they started working in our department. And, and, and for the benefits of some of the, some of the listeners, um, where, where we talk about Sotheby's offices, what we really mean is they have a they have an outlet there, but it's not an auction house. Um, and I, I know that you know I was I think listeners might be quite interested in, you know, we do hear of auctions by the big auction houses uh, like uh, almost like pop up auctions in in Middle Eastern centres like Dubai every now and then. 
Um, but generally speaking, the big Middle Eastern sales are actually take place in in in, in London. Um, yeah. But why, why is that? Why 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 London and why? Because this is a question we're always asked, obviously, on the course. You know, why why, do people, why is London such a hub, and people would would buy and sell art there rather than in it locally? Yeah. Well, you know, Christie's Christie's started selling locally in Dubai, yeah. um, and still do. For us, I think. You know, we our first Middle Eastern art sales, and and there was actually a mix. It was a cross category. Um, there were a few cross category sales. We're in Doha, in Qatar, before, I think, in 2013, around that time, sort of, you know, much earlier, um, and before I started with the team. But London, there's always been a connection with um, London and the and the Middle East. A lot of our clients and buyers and collectors have bases in London. It's mm -hmm. incredibly international. Mm -hmm. um, for us, I think having our sales based in London was the best choice because it's sort of neutral ground yep. a little bit. Um, and and so many people have second homes here. And and yeah, so so it worked. And it also was a way for us to give our artists, or, and I say our artists, you know, artists from the region that we would include in our sales, um, a platform, a global platform. So it actually was was really great to have the sale in London because we'd have these exhibitions, you know, ahead of every auction, you'd have the views on in, um, in the galleries downstairs. And it was a way to expand the audience actually, and to have, you know, modernists and contemporary artists who are originally from the Middle East being shown to this incredibly cosmopolitan um, city. And, and that was a selling point too for clients and consigners and for artists. They, they loved that and, and I thought that was great. And it was sort of opening up the market as well. Um, we did have a couple of, of auctions in Dubai. We, when we launched our, when we opened up our Dubai office in, I think it was, well, we were working on it in 2016. I think we officially launched and opened in 2017. And we opened with a boundless sale. So it was a cross-category sale in in Dubai, which was incredible. It was, and it was such a beautiful sale that my colleague um, Ashkan had put together where we, again, didn't want to just put together an auction that was solely on Middle Eastern art because we realized that the region was so much more than just that as in people were interested in art you know across many many different categories but um, we thought we would put together a sale that had a connection to the region so it was artists that had been inspired by the region um, artists from the region there were design pieces I remember this massive Zaha Hadid table in our offices we had an Ali Bani Saad we had um, a Boati and and the sale did incredibly well but um, but what we ended up doing afterwards was we put together two auctions in the luxury categories so in watches and then actually realized because of what was needed and sort of you know what was happening in the rest of the business that we would actually focus the Dubai office on selling exhibitions non-selling exhibitions and not necessarily go sort of continue with the auctions that we were putting together um, for various reasons and I think it's important to trial and test and and do different things in a new office but um, 
I don't, I think we only held those two watches sales and then that was it. And I'm not really sure what their plan is for auctions now, um, since I'm not, I'm not with them anymore. I could definitely ask. Can you explain what you mean by cross category? Do you mean from different nations, different, different um, media? So that's, yeah, that's a good question. So we worked with the entire, I mean, sort of different departments in Sotheby's yeah. offices globally. So New York, off the New York office, the London office, and we worked with them to put together a sale. So when I, when I say cross category, I mean, you know, we worked with the design department, for example, to source the Zaha Hadid table. We worked with prints. We worked with um, the impressionist team, all sorts of, you know, because all our different because you thought that would uh, appeal to a quite eclectic taste, international tastes of the of, of Middle Eastern buyers of art. Why exactly? And I think we were also seeing that people um, that weren't necessarily from the Middle East were moving to Dubai, and also people, the collectors there, their tastes, you know, were they they had been buying and, and contemporary and impressionists and we wanted to reflect the sophisticated tastes of of our clients and that it wasn't as simple as just because and you know it was maybe also um an educating in ways to mm. to sort of the market and our colleagues that you know people based in the middle east weren't you know weren't necessarily just collecting middle eastern art it was so much more than that um you know, and following that, we had we had um, traveling exhibitions and what we typically do or what we typically did, and they continue to do are um, travel the highlights from various sales to different um, offices in globally and, and offices that don't necessarily host and hold the big auctions that you see. Um, so we had incredible old master paintings come to Dubai um, for the first time actually in the region. And, and of course the, the Leonardo da Vinci Salvatore Mundi which is now a world record at, at, at auction for a painting um, yeah. that sold to a Middle Eastern buyer and also um, earlier in my days at the Institute 2002 I think it was Christie's sold what was then a world record which was an ancient an ancient Greco-Roman uh, Venus. Uh, you, you may remember I did a lecture on it because I wrote a I wrote a chapter in one of our institute books about it called the Jenkins Venus. That was bought yeah. by Sheikh Saldatania of Qatar, uh, and it yeah. and it was what was interesting about that was how exotic that Western mythological character and a nude female. I don't know if it's even on display yet um, in Qatar, but it was part no, of an international museum idea. I think you know. Yeah, I mean, and. It's just so interesting and it was so wonderful to, to get the opportunity to do those lectures to, with the students um, on Monday because having not been kind of deep in, in sort of all things Middle East and what was happening, mm. what is happening in the region, sort of thinking back on what happened and, you know, whether it's sort of these big pieces that have been acquired and taken back to the Middle East or, you know, what continues to happen. Um, you know, Jeff Koons did his first retrospective in the Middle East in Doha and he has this massive public sculpture um I haven't seen it in in, in the flesh it looks typically like you'd imagine a big coons I think it's a whale I'm not really sure what it is <laughs> like um, the, puppy, the puppy in Bilbao by the Guggenheim yes <laughs> the huge puppy made of flowers 
And, yeah, and then so anyway, I'm, I'm aware of, of, of time and I know we both have appointments in quarter for now. So I guess the listeners will probably also want to know about your current job. I mean, we could talk forever about Middle East and what Ariana oh, yeah. has just referred to. It doesn't mean that she's like a full time academic lecturer, but she was a guest lecturer. We invited her to talk about the Middle Eastern market on yeah. one of our business courses um, where we look at different national markets. So I know I've already got very good feedback from the students about that. And one okay. student asking, saying that she wants to do her 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 assignment comparing Middle Eastern. I think you've I think she's reached out to you actually for some help because because there are issues with data which we won't go into now. But you know the art market, as everybody knows, kind of generally lacks transparency. But data for Middle Eastern because of because as you say they're selling exhibitions rather than public auctions a lot of the time. So the data yeah. can be harder to kind of um, isolate for individual Middle Eastern countries. But coming now on to Freeze. Um, so Freeze Art Fair, you know, started in London in 2003, has, has grown both in London and internationally. And Ariana um, now has this wonderful um, job at Freeze um, working on the Freeze 91 VIP um, club, if you like, um, yeah. which people subscribe to. Um, and uh, maybe you could say, maybe maybe you could say something about who who are the people who join that club, yeah. and is it useful for them to know one another? And then and then I think most excitingly, you've just launched literally last night. I signed up for an app for free. Yeah, and you were an early signer. You you were an early. Um, I was an early. Got it early. Yeah, and I'm terrible technologically, so I was I was kind of you know getting my email wrong and then the password. Oh, I'm, and, yeah. I'm so happy to see your your selfie pop up on the app. So thank you for signing up. It's open to everyone as of today, actually. So we were sort of mm. you know on the phone with the developers early this morning. So that's been a whole other adventure. But um, but yeah, I. And the segue is maybe a nice one from talking about the Middle East and going into freeze to to start um, to work with them on on sort of really building this new initiative. And to me, it was my interest in new markets, developing new audiences and reaching an entirely new generation of collectors and art lovers and patrons, whatever it is that, that one would like to call them. Um, Wait, so freeze 95 millennials and Gen Z <laughs> are increasingly entering those high-end markets. So I've been working on that recently for a report I'm doing. It's, yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. So that so, yeah. so that there is a lot of wealth, I think, amongst younger art collectors as well. And I, exactly. And I think I I'll go on to sort of give a very brief kind of overview on what Phrase 91 is, but I think it's so important in our industry as as it's shifting, I think we're in an inflection point where museums are looking at their collections differently. They're understanding that they're, you know, it's increasingly the audience is intercultural, intergenerational. There's this new wave of people that are coming in. And we really, in order to kind of keep this going back to the ecosystem alive and healthy, we we need to think about how we continue to sort of um, feed it. And mm -hmm. it can't just be sort of targeting and, and reaching out to the same people. Galleries can't, you know, continue to reach out to the same clients, auction houses, etc. And and the fairs, the fairs need um, new audiences and, and new um, sort of clients. But, um, but Freeze 91 was really born out of a desire to engage with communities year round and communities being the galleries and the institutions that we work with or the people that come to our fairs that really love, um, you know, 
getting to know what's going on in the sort of arts and cultural space um, more deeply. So it's it's a group of people that I would say are, you know, that are art lover, lovers, buyers, collectors um, at various levels. And, and I don't want to sort of, I feel like sometimes the word collectors is a bit, um, it's not as inclusive because what does it mean to be a collector? You know, let's be honest, the price points at Freeze aren't necessarily always and, and that often that accessible, but you know, you can buy at a sort of lower, more um, modest level, but still be a collector. In my opinion, it shouldn't just be, you know, the the number of zeros that you're you're purchasing at. So, I, so I'm really, a <laughs> and there aren't that many zeros on the work sci-fi. I can tell you, it should be, it should be about that, and um, you know, and also people are collecting, but are you know busy working professionals, you know that that don't have time to go to the Tuesday collector's luncheon. You know, they're mm -hmm. working, you know, 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. And, mm -hmm. and but they're hungry and they want to go to galleries. They want to support artists. And, and this program is is young in, in, in that it's only a year, a year and a half old. Um, but it's really about building a program that's global, um, connecting London, New York, LA, and we're, we're launching and rolling it out in Seoul in the spring. And it's about, creating ways where we can um, a support our galleries year round as in plan artist studio visits and connect an audience so our members who want to get to know these galleries but don't really have the bandwidth to kind of you know scour the internet and figure out what galleries they should be looking at or shouldn't be looking at um, so so yeah it's really it's it's for a new generation and it's to make it you know, accessible to a degree but also make it um a community and it sounds a little bit cheesy to talk about community and you know fuzzy and loving but but really it is about that it's you know how can we make you know have give you the art world so you feel like it's sort of at your fingertips and with this app which is really exciting it's it's a way for the community to connect so we for us it was we would meet all these incredible members that are either you know interested in nfts or have their own galleries or collecting young artists and i'll hear something and i'll realize that someone based in la is has very similar interests but how do we connect them and mm -hmm. it should be about that too and what's great about what we do at freeze is that we're not selling the art we're not you know we we're really just trying to create this um really um, powerful creative community um, that can draw kind of energy from itself. So, so yeah, it's all, it's all new. It's all very exciting. Um, and I hope that it is additive for, for everyone, for galleries, for institutions, for collectors, for, yeah. Yeah. And so um, were there uh, just something about the structure of the app? Um, is it is it using things like algorithm? Did you bring in kind of like expert people to design it? Yeah. And what yeah. what did they? What kind of questions and what kind of things did you ask them to make it do? So so it's um it's a company called the Dots. You may yes. be familiar with them. Well, I, I they, had to sign up to that act. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They have they have their own platform, which is sort of. It's a professional networking yeah. platform, um, more geared for for people in the creative in creative industries. Mm -hmm. They also white label because their tech is so so um, is really great. It's they white label, so they work with clients like Apple, with Soho mm -hmm. Soho Works, um, 
I think UAL possibly. Um, so for us, it was about how do we how do we create ways that we can connect with our clubs, call it Freeze 91 Club, in more dynamic ways? Because right now, you know, we have our newsletters, we have our website, but things change so quickly in our industry and in this world. You know, you'll discover this opening that's happening next week. You'll see this great article. You'll want to post it. And it was it was a way for us to be able to be more dynamic and fluid mm -hmm. and fresh with our members and to sort of not be as restricted with, you know, the once a month kind of very traditional newsletter. So we wanted to be able to do that. We wanted our members to know who was in the community. We have an incredible committee of Freeze 91 um, leaders. So you may have seen that we hosted a very, it was a really fun Christmas um, holiday. It was our holiday party with Maro Atoje, who's a great yes, collector. I, I really wanted to come to that. He's one of my favorite rugby players. And we have an alumna, by the way, who's into, who photographs rugby. Really? Uh, and she, <laughs> she, he's one of, you know, she follows him and yeah. he texts a lot. Yeah, uh, no, no, no. Which is why you invited him, yeah. Exactly. So he's on our committee and he hosted our, our Freeze 91 holiday event. And it's sort of, you know, we wanted these members to get to know our committee and for us to be able to support support the committee with all the various projects that they're working on. So, so Marrow is one great example. Sophie right. Ashby is an interior designer. She's also on our committee. Um, Edeline Lee, I would say to everyone, if this podcast is live before Fashion Week in London, we supported her on her London Fashion Week show. So, you know, mm. she's become a dear friend now but but yeah it was a way to to get our members more familiar with our committee simon fox our ceo is on the app so if that's ever a reason to join the app and dm simon fox our ceo <laughs> then then you have that opportunity i'm sure he'd respond he's very responsive um and uh yeah it's you can see he's going to events what's really cool actually um it's a bit geeky but you can if you're going to the fair, you can, it has a geolocator. So you can see oh, wow. who's physically in the space and connect with people. That's amazing. Um, yeah, so so we're really excited. You'll get, we'll have a you'll get stalked by people. <laughs> no, I think it's great. I think it's great. The bugs that you said that you've been fixing this morning, was it any, I mean, when it, it asked me, when I was doing my profile, it asked, um, what's your profession? And I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't put in academic, lecturer, Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And so in the end, I found author, which was probably about as close as I could get. So I don't know well, why it was, but obviously there's no, going to be a few bugs like that in it. Exactly. You know. So it's, we, we were actually just speaking about this, where we want either our members to be able to create their own tags or yeah. for them to increase the number of tags that mm -hmm. are um, available. My brother asked a similar, he is a member, he is a pain member of Freeze 91. Um, he is a... <laughs> He's a macro trader in New York, so he's an FX trader. And I get this very sort of abrupt message on WhatsApp saying, why do I have to put in my profession? And why is there no option for financial trader? And I yeah. had to sort of keep well, that tell, up. To tell him that there's not, nothing for academic either. They're obviously not expected to be art collectors, but they don't pay us enough, you know. <laughs> Whereas for him, he's certainly someone who should be on the list. You know? <laughs> oh, and um, Ariana, before I forget, Freeze 91, the name for our listeners? Yeah, so Freeze 91 is, um, so 
while we started our fairs a little bit later, as you said, David, um, the free started off as a magazine. It was a publication, an incredible publication that was launched in London um, by Amanda Sharp and Matthew Slotover, and it was started in 1991. So I guess in a way it's it's quite poetic. Freeze 91, you know, started off as this, you know, it wasn't a commercial art fair at all. And it was really about championing contemporary artists yeah. and contemporary culture. And in this way, you know, with Freeze 91, which is our our community and a year-round membership program, it's really, you know, it's to be able to kind of maybe re-energize. Um, that belief, which is still very much, you know, part of the the fabric of of freeze and continues to be our lifeblood. But it's really mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, breathe life into, you know, the mm -hmm. the kind of starting point. So yeah. Yeah, I was re reading some recent wealth reports, um, which are incredibly expensive to buy. So you you can access them in the mm -hmm. in the business center of the British Library for free. Um, and one interesting thing they were saying about millennials and Gen Z is that there's a much greater interest in, they, they, wanna, they wanna invest in things they really believe in, not just for financial mm -hmm. investment. Uh, they're, they're more philanthropic, more giving. And it seems yeah. to me that this coincides with the creation of the this Freeze 91 group, that, that these are people who, who aren't just in it for kind of like financial investment. They really are in it, as you said earlier, because they're really genuinely interested culturally yeah. And philanthropically in in supporting emerging artists and you know, which you obviously do by purchasing works at, at freeze art fairs um and i think i think yes of course it's it's purchase, purchasing artworks from artists to allow them to have you know you know a livelihood but but really it's also you know there are smaller ways to support artists as well i mean buying their art for sure but to yeah. be able to being part of this program allows us to sort of program, you know, studio visits, visit artists, get mm -hmm. them more visible, write about them, do videos, recordings, share their work, give them, a, you know, mm -hmm. um, a broader reach. But, you know, it's it's sort of, it's in all those different ways too. And um, yeah, so I hope, I hope that this, I mean, again, it's early days, but I really think that this, we're at a really exciting point in our industry as you said, where there's this new wave of, of, of people that are interested in being slightly more um, maybe philanthropic, have a belief in supporting ecosystems and, and what's happening. And hopefully, you know, we're just gonna go, continue to go from strength to, to strength. We're, we're growing quite quickly now. And um, yeah, we're building our team. So we're getting bigger internally as well. So- And of course this year for the first time, the MA Art Business students at the Institute in London of are course. members. We've signed them all up to the Freeze VIP. Can I say yes. that, I mean, it's, it was almost serendipitous. I mean, it just, I don't know, the fact that there are 91 students from the yes. MA program. In the <laughs> 91 Freeze 91. It's great, isn't it? And I, I'm that pretty was, certain it was in the early days when I was at the Institute, um, teaching classical art, <laughs> the start not art business, um, but I attended a lecture on the art on this new art business MA because it interested me. That I think it was probably Michael Slotover who was talking about the magazine. And now it didn't make it. He's saying it doesn't make any money. We're lucky to have people who put money into it because of the idea of yeah of great contemporary art being produced, particularly in the UK. You know. And, and I think it was probably him, but someone certainly came along and I thought I felt really sorry for them. I thought, oh, God, you know, this is a great magazine, but they're obviously, you know, you haven't got any money. And uh, 
So that's basically what that has grown into now in many ways. Um, I, we're not going to have time, but 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 um, maybe we could do another podcast yeah. at some point because yeah. I mean, um, Ariana about- Ariana is 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 actively visiting these art recent freeze editions uh, in places like Seoul in South Korea, yeah. and she's about to go to LA, which is which I think will be its second edition. No, it's actually so. It's the, I went for the- it's older than that, isn't it? Yeah, twenty nineteen. I yeah, it's older. I was going to say yeah. freeze is older than that. Um, but it's jumped around. It, it was in Paramount st- as far as locations. It was in Paramount yeah, Studios in the over the years. Yeah. Um, last year, and now we're in Santa Monica Airport, which is a new venue, much it's bigger. It's changed, yeah, because that, I know there were a few issues last year with the Paramount Studios, however glamorous and one level and cultural it was. So yeah, yeah, see what, yeah. maybe we could do another podcast for your experiences just from Seoul and and and, oh, and in the future, but. Yeah. There's so much to talk about. I mean, you know, LA, we're, we're all off to LA um, tomorrow, <laughs> which is crazy. I, I have not I packed my... The, and I know you're going to have a party as an official yes. launch of the, of the app. We're going to have a very fun, very cool party in LA on Friday, next Friday, so a week from today. And um, we'll have it at the Edition Hotel, which is a really, you know, swanky yeah. fun hotel in LA and we've got this great <laughs> DJ um there's vinyl only so any of the you know and that's what I should have said actually in when you asked me about music I had been put in touch with this DJ who does vinyl only and he's great and we've actually another part of what we're doing and rolling out with Freeze 91 is we're gonna curate soundtracks to the fair so we've worked with with DJ Jahari, Jahari Terry for anyone that's interested. And um, he's put together a playlist that's very LA. You know, he's from, you know, he's based in LA. He grew up in in Oakland in California in the Bay Area. So the soundtrack will really reflect the city, which is a lot, you know, Christine, our fair director does so much, you know, outside sort of in parallel with the fair to engage, you know, local LA-based communities and art, arts organizations. So mm-hmm. it sort of goes beyond the fair and, and the commercial galleries that we we support and we champion. So so yeah, so it's all about galvanizing the creative ecosystem. And yeah, I look forward to, I've been listening to this soundtrack to get me pumped and excited for the fair. So <laughs> he'll be DJing at that party. Um, put the link on the great. app and I'll, I'll, I'll take a listen. On um, it'll also be on Freeze Connect. So you yeah. can, you can there and I wish and, I, I wish I had time to fly over just for the party. I know, I know. <laughs> it'll be a fun party, eight to ten. If anyone wants to go, just let me know. Find me on Instagram, and I'll, I'll make sure you're on the list. Um, I remember yeah. driving down Sunset Boulevard when, um, uh, when, when I was asked to go out. Uh, by the institute to set up the the LA Institute, which um, oh. I, which I set it up, but it, it it lasted a few years, and then for various reasons, it's closed down now. But um, I remember driving out there in this this wonderful hire car, driving along there, thinking I was Richard Gere, you know, <laughs> going, going to the manager. I see the resemblance. I see the resemblance. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, and um, 
Uh, yeah, and actually one other thing when I think about it, I referred to a, an alumna who is a photographs rugby, and of course she was one of my guests, Don Ming Kim was actually one of my guests on the podcast. So oh, really? we talked about yeah, photographing rugby. So and 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 I know it I know Maro Toji's one of her heroes. So um she yeah, would have been very I didn't tell her, I nearly sort of DM'd her to say, Oh, by the way, I'm going to see Toji with this sort of freezer. <laughs> Can I come? You know, so well, anyway, we're, yeah. we're hoping to we're hoping to do a few more things with Marrow this year. I know he's busy playing rugby right now, um, yeah. and uh, yeah, not, but not doing too well actually at the moment. Oh, I know. I heard. We lost I the Scotland at Twickenham last week, so let's hope I that know. you know. Yeah, um, but um, collecting and freeze ninety one to fall back on. Yeah, and that thing also about the DJ and music and art. <laughs> You know the last podcast I did with Milena Berman. She she was talking about she has she has a wine company in Hope Coat in Bordeaux, uh, and she does our wine and culture tours. And oh. she Milena was talking about how how they did this really successful launch of hit getting hip hop artists to come and do the music for the wine tasting. Oh, you know, oh, I'll definitely have to listen to that. And <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. very interesting. So she's I mixed in. with her. I yeah, should connect no. with. You should, connect with, you should connect with Milena. Yeah, it's very, very exciting. And um, she she wasn't a London MA Art business student. She was a high, we have this thing called a hybrid student where they, I think she studied online and then came to London for a semester. And, you know, so oh. but she's, she's got this very interesting business. So, so listen to the last podcast as well. Oh, and then yeah. Dolphin's one, the, 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 the photographer from an earlier time. So anyway, um, you're, in, you're on the line of a lot of, uh, you know, very special Twelve-hour flight yes. to listen to all of your podcasts is what I will. <laughs> it's basic. Yeah. No. Anyway. Um. So. Anyway. Thank you very much, Ariana Khan, for um um for being my guest today, and um have a great time uh, in LA for Freeze LA, and um don't stay up too late at the party. You're going to be watching <laughs> the sunrise. I know it's called Hollywood Sunset. I think the party, but it'll be, I was thinking it'd probably be the sunrise as well. So hopefully the DJ will be playing some cool chill, chill out music in the early oh, yeah. later. He'll start off, he'll start off chill and he'll end up getting us all bouncing and you know, <laughs> whatever on the dance floor. You know, you know, Pete Tong was at my school. Um and um oh, he yeah. used to he used to do the disco, the school disco, believe it or not. I remember him doing it when he was 15, and that was really good oh, fun. And gosh. little did I know that this guy would never would one day be the big DJ. <laughs> it's funny how these yeah. little little seeds from your past sort of grow into these things, you know. Anyway, thank you very much, Ariana, and have a great, great time in LA. Pleasure. <laughs>